Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show, the worrying growth of bogus scientific journals. Everyone who's participating in this scam has found a way to profit from it. And as the Football World Cup continues, we discuss if there is an optimal strategy to the penalty shootout. What's also interesting about the penalty shootout is there's basically no relationship between the quality of the team and who's going to win. For years, American space companies have gone into the stratosphere looking for new business opportunities. The Chinese have not been players, but that's all changing. Today, a new Chinese private space company called OneSpace is entering the field. After a successful launch in May, it is looking to get into the game using solid fuel, not liquid fuel like the Americans use. Joining me in the studio to discuss one space and just what is solid fuel and why it's important is Hal Hodson, the Economist science and technology correspondent. Hello, Hal. Harry again. So tell us first about the launch. So the launch happened in May. It was... By the standards of your SpaceX's and your Blue Origins that the American private space companies, this was kind of small potatoes, but it's still China's first private space launch. It was a nine-meter solid-fuel rocket, did a parabola that was about 260 kilometers long and 40 kilometers high, landing in the Chinese desert. And this is a pretty big step for China's private space industry, which has gone from non-existent in 2015 to four or five competing launch companies, multiple microsat companies, and it's moving quite quickly. And one thing that's distinctive about the company is its role that it plays with solid fuel. That's right. So all of the American private space companies use liquid fuel. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages of each. Um, Liquid fuel allows you to control your rocket a little bit better. You can throttle it up, you can throttle it down. But it is more expensive to handle than solid fuel. Solid fuel is just more convenient and easier. It also makes for a slightly smaller rocket. And overall, it makes for cheaper launches, especially once you get down to small rockets, which are going to be launching these small satellites. And seeing as that's kind of the this seems like maybe quite a quite a fortuitous move from the from the Chinese companies. So if it's so smart to use solid fuels, why wouldn't American pioneers who are in privatization of space be using it themselves? I don't know the answer to that, but I think it has a lot to do with the sort of historical government legacy of state-run programs. The Chinese state launches have relied more on solid fuel than the US ones as far as I can tell, but it seems to just be to my current knowledge, a quirk of the ways that the programs have operated to this point, the, the new Chinese private firms are definitely built upon the Chinese state technology. But the idea is that they can move faster, build rockets for cheaper, and start to innovate and create new designs based on that. So what are the goals of OneSpace? OneSpace's goals, they don't have the kind of musky and we're going to go to Mars by 2030 goal. They're actually, all of the companies are a lot quieter than the Blue Origins and the SpaceX's. Their goal, uh, I mean, for this year is to get to orbit before the end of the year, which is pretty dramatic and fast. 
And what about the Chinese other players in private space exploration? What do they hope to achieve? They're all going after the same market, which is, for the most part, domestic customers, so Chinese customers, building small satellites, wanting them to be launched. And it's a global market as well. The only customers that they can't go after are American ones. But I guess I wonder, will Chinese companies dominate the launches of privatized satellites as they have dominated so many other areas of manufacturing? I think it's quite possible. There are already wide concerns in the satellite industry. I guess that they're concerns for some people and happiness for others that the Chinese launch prices will bring the whole market way down and that the cost of launch will go down. So currently, the cost to launch a, a, a microsatellite or a CubeSat is somewhere in the region of $350,000 to $400,000. And there's talk that the Chinese companies will massively decrease that to somewhere in the region of two hundred and fifty. So that would be a big shakeup for the industry. So the new space race is the space race. Hal, thank you very much. Cheers, Kevin. Thanks. Last week, we discussed the return of polio to Venezuela. We reported on what seemed to be the first case of polio in South America since 1991. I'm joined in the studio by Natasha Loder, the Economist healthcare correspondent, to update us on the story. Hello, Natasha. Hello. Well... The bottom line is that, in fact, there is not a case of polio in Venezuela. When we uh, wrote our story last week, the health department there was reporting this information. But subsequently, the World Health Organization has done a series of tests and has ruled it out. The child does have paralysis. The child does have polio vaccine in their fecal matter. But the current theory about this is that the paralysis is caused by some other cause and that the polio vaccine they detected was probably picked up from, you know, not to put it to find a point on it, she came into contact with fecal matter that had the polio vaccine in it. We do know that children who are vaccinated shed polio virus in their stools. And so um, it can be passed on uh, to another, uh, can be passed on to another child. That doesn't necessarily mean that they got the polio. So that's what we know so far. We may never know the exact way that this child became paralyzed. But what we can be pretty certain about is that there's not an outbreak that's going to cause a public health risk. That, I think, is the main message that I have today. Natasha, thank you very much. Next up, academics have long known that they must publish papers, and typically the more the better. Evaluating professors this way has been common since the invention of scientific journals in the 17th century. Also common has been using experts to scrutinize the manuscripts, what is called peer review. But recently, an increasing number of journals that claim to review submissions actually don't bother to do so, and it's throwing a negative light on the integrity of scientific research. Joining me on the phone is Benjamin Sutherland, who has written about this for this week's Economist. Hello, Benjamin. Hello. Good to be here. So fake news has spread to the science world? It has, and in a big way. The number of fake scientific or academic journals is debated, but estimates run from almost 9,000 to more than 14,000, depending on who is counting. So why can't this be regulated through the traditional norms of scientific processes, such as if you plagiarize, you 
lose your reputation and therefore you might lose your job. In this instance, if you publish in a clearly fraudulent journal, that you lose your reputation and you lose your job as well. Right. That's actually not happening for a few reasons. First of all, everyone who's participating in the scam has found a way to profit from it. First of all, the journals are making money because they charge the authors to uh, have their articles run rather than a former model, which was essentially a subscription model where readers would pay. So the journals have an interest in publishing as much as possible. The authors have an interest in publishing as much as possible because of the old publisher paradigm, which says the more the better. And uh, the schools and the institutions who are hiring, firing, promoting teachers don't really have or haven't shown at least a lot of interest in in checking up on which of these journals are fake and which are legitimate, partly because it takes time and effort, but also because a lot of uh, these administrators themselves have published in fake journals and they are not interested in calling attention to what they've done. This is outrageous. It sounds like there's some sort of rot in the body of science. Let me just ask, are the papers themselves fraudulent or the papers good but just couldn't find a home in a top-tier journal and are these papers being cited uh, some of the papers are being cited the quality of the papers varies greatly so you do have some papers that aren't a complete farce uh, maybe the author just as you mentioned couldn't get it placed in a better journal but you do have some papers which are an absolute farce uh, the methodology Uh, Sometimes the uh, results are purely just invented, uh, or it's it's a paper on business management with uh, trite uh, platitudes lifted from other publications that really offers no new advance in the field whatsoever. They give it a fancy name, they put it on their resume, and that helps the candidate bolster his uh, application for becoming dean at a, a small college somewhere. Ben, why is this actually taking place? Is this because the internet has created this cornucopia of information that we can no longer distinguish the very good from the mediocre? Or is there something else that that this would have happened anyway, and the internet just sort of abets it? The internet is playing a role. It is abetting the problem. But a bigger shift is essentially uh, a shift towards what's called open access publishing, which has some benefits that says essentially anyone can read scientific or academic articles online for free. And instead of charging the reader, it's the authors who are going to pay. All that really matters is finding an author who's willing to pay for the prestige of uh, being able to say, hey, I published this. And what can be done about this? Basically, the solution is there's two possibilities. One would be for the institutions that hire and promote researchers to say, no longer are we going to just look at quantity, we're going to look at quality, we're going to look closely at what you've published, we're going to read it, we're going to analyze the actual text in the research itself and decide if, uh, if this is high quality. That would have the added benefit of perhaps reducing the amount of Uh, scientific papers, perhaps by an order of magnitude. You would have better quality material, it would be easier to do research, more people would be able to find valuable research. As it is, you you, you have to go through just reams of material, and unless you're an expert in the field, it's hard to figure out right away what is just rehashed findings that were determined more authoritatively a few years ago in another paper. But Unfortunately, we don't see any 
movement in that direction. The, the, the institutions are sticking with Publisher Parish. They're doing the shortcut of we're going to take a look at how many publications you have in order to figure out uh, how good and productive you are. Probably the more realistic solution would be to have some sort of an open peer review where papers are quote-unquote pre-published online and then you would have a reputation system where scientists and researchers would sign up to peer review them. They would do that under their own name in a public way and uh, develop a reputation over time for being rigorous and fair and so forth. And to kind of take the whole business of peer review out of the hands of the publishers who have really no financial interest in having a good thorough peer review done and putting it in the hands of researchers who have at least in theory a reputation to defend. Benjamin, thank you very much for telling us about it. Okay, good to talk. And what do you think about the prevalence of bogus peer reviews or on China's rocket revolution? Tell us in an email and send them to radio at economist.com or reach us on Twitter at Economist Radio. Regular Babbage listeners will know that we often give away a book on The Babbage Show to one lucky listener who can answer one very atypical question. All you have to do is email us with the answer. This week's book is a novel, and it's a little bit of a science fiction novel, and it's called Disco Sour, Digital Breakups, An Epic Journey, A Fight for Democracy, and it's written by Giuseppe Porcaro. This week's question is a little bit science fiction-y, we sort of already know that in 100 years, we probably won't be typing in passwords to identify who we are. What in 100 years will certify people's identity? That's the question. Come up with your creative answers in less than 50 words. Finally, the Men's World Cup is underway. And on Babbage, we like to look at things from a more scientific angle, specifically the dreaded penalty shootout. Yes, I'm reading a script, because for me, this is soccer, and I know almost nothing about the game. So we're going to find out more about it. Joining me in the studio is James Francham, one of The Economist's data journalists. Hello, James. Hi, Ken. So, James, the Football World Cup is taking place, and there is something called a penalty shootout. For some of our listeners who are not aware of it, what is the penalty shootout? Okay, so um, there's a game of football happening. Uh, there's 22 players running around a pitch, and um, if after 90 minutes um, the game is tied, drawn, then they play an additional 30 minutes of extra time. If after 30 minutes of that extra time the game is still tied, then the game is decided by a penalty shootout. At the peril of me disclosing my naked immaturity yeah. in terms of not knowing anything about football. Okay. You're a data journalist, so yeah. why do you care about this? What's so, going on? Well, the interesting thing about this shootout is it, it, it's kind of a discrete bit of the game. So we like to measure things in, in data journalism. So it's a really interesting area to study. What's also interesting about the penalty shootout is there's basically no relationship between the quality of the team and who's going to win. So effectively... Wait, stop. So that's a headline news. So why should that be the case and how does the data corroborate that? Yeah, so basically because it's actually not that difficult to, to score a penalty, but it's just kind of random chance because... Seriously? Well, effectively. So the penalty spot is 12 yards away from the goal line. And if you kick the ball... It takes about half a second for it to travel that 12 yards past the goal line. So the goalkeeper has to preemptively dive because if they wait for the direction, it's past them before they can actually get there. Because the goal is quite large. It's two and a half meters wide. So you have this kind of game theoretical point where you're, you know, 
at the blow of a whistle, the ball is kicked and the goalkeeper dives. And at some point, there is some kind of matching strategy whereby you have to optimally choose which direction to go. So I was given some data from Opta, who are a kind of sports analytics company, and they sent me um, all the data of the World Cup penalties. And in addition to that, the international competition, the European Championship. So in total, we've got a data set of of some 250 penalties going back over the past uh, 30 30 odd years. So analysing this data, you can look at kind of interesting, you know, interesting dynamics between kicker and goalkeeper. And you found... So one thing that is known is that uh, there's a preference of kick direction given the the left or right-footedness of the player. So right-footed players, for example, prefer to kick to their left-hand side because you can apply more power to the ball. Whereas opposed to if you're a right-footed player and you were to place it to your right-hand side, it's actually quite difficult to apply lots of power to it and also give it an accurate direction. So, for example, players, right-footed players, will place the ball to their left-hand side about 55% of the time. Now, the interesting thing is that goalkeepers clearly are aware of this preference and they also dive to their right-hand side, that player's left, 54% of the time. So there's an interesting matching process going on. This is extraordinary. How can we use this data? What does it tell us about the game to optimize our play and our chances of winning? Well, there's certain things that we kind of knew um, already but there are certain things that we that can be done to in, improve our, our chances, our team's chances of success. One thing is actually to be quite lucky. What we do know is that there's an enormous first move advantage with penalty taking. So the team that kicks first, for example, will win about 60% of the time, which is quite a remarkable advantage. So the first thing is you've got to be, you've got to hope that your team shoots first because that will really improve their chances of success. Why should shooting first improve the chances of success? Is it the, the phenomenon of what has been derided as the magic hand, that if when you start scoring a lot, you start scoring more? People have tried to debunk it. There is evidence in both directions. What have you found? That is thought to be true. The work that I cite is uh, by a chap at the LSE called Ignacio Palacios Huerta. He So he found, after amassing 1,000 penalty shootouts, that there was this enormous first mover advantage, which is very interesting. We don't know why that is, but we do, there are some kind of signals from the data about what, what might be happening. And the, the effect is, is stress, we think, so that in a stressful situation at the given sequence of a penalty, so the, the fifth penalty, for example, so if you're, if you're shooting to stay in the tie at the, at the fifth penalty and that your, your team is down 5-4, there's an extreme amount of stress on that player to score that goal. So James, it also suggests that if you're a weak opponent, you want everything you can to, to get a tie. If you're a strong opponent, in, during the regular play, you really don't want a tie because in a situation of randomness, the weaker has a fighting chance of winning, the stronger has a real risk of losing. Yeah, it's a it's a level playing field, as it were. The interesting thing, too, is that the penalty kick was introduced to replace the coin toss. But actually, in effect, it is just a coin toss anyway. Just a more entertaining one. James, that's fascinating. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, please consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the host of Babbage, and in London, 
This is the Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.